you know, I have this like poem. I don't know, like I kind of want to share it on what do you think and should I put my name on it? And she was like, yeah, like I think it's great. Of course you should put your name on it because I think it's important for people to see like how you look because that says so much about why you're writing, about what you're writing about. Hey listeners, in today's episode, we're resharing a conversation with Rupi Kaur. Rupi is an Indian-born Canadian poet, artist, performer, and social media star whose works have taken the literary world by storm. As a 21-year-old university student, Rupi wrote, illustrated, and self-published her first poetry collection, Milk and Honey, which landed as a New York Times number one bestseller and became an international phenomenon. Rupi's words on love, loss, trauma, healing, and femininity has inspired readers and connected women from all around the world. Her second book, The Sun and Her Flowers, explores her Punjabi Canadian heritage and reached the top three on Amazon's bestseller list. Rupi's books have sold over 8 million copies and have been translated into over 42 languages. Along her literary journey, she's toured the world performing, hosted writing workshops, and has been featured on Forbes' 30 Under 30 list and BBC's 100 Women in 2017. Recently, she released her widely anticipated third poetry collection called Homebody, a reflective and intimate journey visiting the past, present, and the potential of the self. In this original interview with Sofia Amoruso from 2018, Rupi chats about her immigrant upbringing, how writing saved her, what success means to her, and the importance of having honest dialogue with yourself. Enjoy the conversation with Rupi. It was funny because like most kids were like, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to party. I'm going to do this cool thing, you know, and I'm not going to study. But I was like, yeah, I'm not going to study. I'm going to write some poetry. Cool. You know, and like that was like my thing. And so I didn't really mean to grow an audience, but it started to slowly develop. And for me, it was about sharing and having conversation. And Tumblr was great for that. Rupi wrote, illustrated and self-published her first collection, Milk and Honey, while she was still in college. I sat at my kitchen table and I illustrated and I wrote. Most of the poetry had actually already been written at that point. I was just compiling it all, but I was now doing the illustrations. I designed it. It took about a week and I was laser focused on this thing. In the years since, Milk and Honey has become an international phenomenon. It sold over two and a half million copies, been translated into more than 30 languages, and landed as a number one New York Times bestseller, where it continues to sit for the 80th week straight. Her new book, The Sun and Her Flowers, has also become a global bestseller. It's not 100% autobiographical. A lot of it is taken also from, I guess, the experiences of the people around me, the people that I grew up with, the stories I listen to, the stories that I share. And it's a sort of like, almost like communal storytelling for me. Rupi's ability to thoughtfully observe and connect women through her words has inspired readers around the world, and I'm so excited that she's joining us today. I want to hear about your childhood. You grew up in Punjab, India. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your early life, and and then you emigrated, right? Yeah, so I mean, I spent only three and a half, close to four years there, and I grew up... It was nice. I mean, everybody always tells me I grew up amongst like so much love. And there's like the saying that, you know, when when you grow up in like a rural sort of 
village, what happens is like you're growing up. It's literally like a village race as a child. And so my mom is always like, your feet never touch the ground. There was always somebody, a grandfather, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor, always scooping you up and, you know, feeding you and loving you and all those nice things. And so um, that was my earlier childhood. I mean, I didn't have to share you know, my mom with any other sibling yet. Um, I later went on to have three other siblings. Uh, I grew up mostly around my mom's side of the family. My dad was a refugee, so he left. I never got to spend the first sort of three part, couple years of my life with him. And when I was born, like he wasn't there. And so when my dad like left India, uh, he, my mom left his side of the family and just went to live with her own parents. Usually what happens in an Indian household is when a man and woman get married, the woman leaves her family and she lives with her in-laws. And so because my dad had gone, um, she went back and she was like, I'm just going to live with my parents, which is also like a really rebellious thing to do and not very common at all. But that's my mom. (laughs) And so then we were... Join when he had gotten citizenship in Canada. I guess he'd gotten it for eventually four years, and he got it for us as well. And so we joined him in Montreal, and I think that's where life was like the juxtaposition began. It's like, and I think that's when things sort of started to switch for me on the inside. Growing up in a place where there were so many people around, where the weather was always warm, where there was so much love and so much rich color, all of that. And then suddenly you land in a place place in the dead of winter and this person comes to greet you and you have no idea who this person is and you're a child and you're crying because you feel like you know, you've left what you knew as a father, a.k.a. your grandfather behind, yet there's this entirely different man there. And he's like, no, I'm your dad. And you're like, but you're not. And so this sort of me and my dad started butting heads like right away. And so that's uh, that's been our relationship. And, you know, we've been working on it. And now we're able to have like just conversation and dialogue more so um, than we used to. But And then when I was in Montreal, uh, my sister was born. Then we moved from Montreal to Toronto. And then another sister was born, and I had a a younger brother as well. Your dad was a truck driver initially in Canada? He still is, yeah. So he used to... Yeah, so he would... For a majority of my life, he actually did, like, long-distance driving. And so he would drive across the continent from Montreal to Texas or California. And so he would be home maybe once a week. And so my mom was, like, raising us like a single mom almost because he was around, like, a couple hours a week. And when he was around, he was, of course, so exhausted and so tired. And so he would be sleeping, and my mom would be like, shushing up the kids because, you know, dad's home and he's tired and he's exhausted. So y'all need to keep quiet so he can rest. And so um, he did that driving for about a good many years, I would say about at least 
10-ish years, and then he switched to uh, going only for a couple days. So he'd be gone for about four days, and he'd come back for a day and be gone for another four days. Um, and now he he's still driving, but he's gone only for two days at a time. But it's still, like, it's still a lot. And what happens is, like, they miss so much. And whereas mom is always around, you know, but mom was like, even though she's a stay at home mom, like this woman and I'm like in awe of all that she's done. And there are days, you know, when she'll just be having one of her days and be like, wow, like I accomplished absolutely like what did I accomplish in these past like 25 years I didn't do anything like I didn't even learn the language I can't you know operate a phone I can't even use the laptop I can't do any of those things like I'm and she calls herself stupid and that always makes me cry and actually inspired so much of my second book because I just look at her I'm like wow like but you created not just that you created us, but you created, like, to me, I'm like, you wrote these books. Like, you did that. Like, you have to take ownership and responsibility for that because if you were not doing the things you were doing, God knows where I would be right now because she was, like, holding down and managing a household and, do, like, dropping four kids off. Every hour she was in a car dropping somebody off to a different school, different lunches, all of the things, and, you know, a holding it down. And it's interesting because, like, before her, every generation before her, motherhood looked a different way, you know? You would raise your babies with your sisters around, with your mother-in-law mother-in-law around, with your... There was so much help, but there wasn't a rule book for how to do it all by yourself. And so... And she did it with such strength as well. And so it's so interesting to see how all those things work. And now, you know, as an adult, I feel like I'm reflecting on that. And so much of, like, you know, our teenage years are spent, like, fighting our parents and being like, oh, you hate me and you just want me to suffer. But now it's like I'm at the complete opposite end where, you know, I've seen what the sacrifices have done to them emotionally, mentally, and physically. And I'm like, just a crybaby all the time. Like, oh, how do I, how do I give you everything now? (laughs) At just 25 years old, Rupi is a Forbes 30 under 30 and editor of the 2016 May's Literary Anthology of New Writing from the Universities of Oxford and Cambridge and one of BBC's 100 Women of 2017. Now, what does it feel like to have your parents be, like, proud of you? I think that's kind of underestimated. We, you know, grow up, you know, trying to make our parents proud. And then once you get into your 20s, you're like, whatever, I'm an adult. Who cares about making our parents proud? But then (laughs) when you do, even if it's accidental, to me, it's it's been like, whoa, this is so cool. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to they, they're so proud. Like, and it's so hilarious because we, and I don't, not all Indian people are like this, so I can't speak for all of them, but a lot of the ones that I know, um, my family and the families around me where I live, like, we are not, we don't know how to, especially between parents and children, not very affectionate. So my dad will never, ever say, and a lot of parents are like this, even with outside of my own community, but... um He's never been like, oh, good, or I like that, or I'm proud of you, or like he's never even been like, oh, we've never even said I love you to each other. We only, you know, but we'll never have that conversation. But I know he's so proud because what happens is 
I, when I'm home, I pull up at the grocery store. You know, I'm like buying my almond milk and all my like nice foods that he doesn't understand. And I get in line at the grocery store and the nice lady's like, oh my God, like, how's it going? Like, your dad was here and he was telling me about your book and da 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 da. And I was like, okay. Like, why do you know all this information? And so then I go to the bank. I know. You know, and then the, uh, all the tellers <laughs> know everything about my life. And it's so hilarious. So I'm like, I tell everyone, I think he secretly walks around with a stash of my books. Or, you know, he'll come to me and be like, yeah, I went to the store. This guy sold me a bed or a sofa. Anyways, I like, told him about you. Now sign this book so I can give it to him. And that's it. <laughs> It's funny when your parents start using you as like a type of currency, even though it's just like their pride, but they also like know that like someone's going to get really excited if they say that they're your parent. It's it's like, it it can get a little awkward. It's so so awkward because I'm like, Dad, this is your friends who are, you know, I don't know if they're going to understand this or like, no offense, but they're like 50-year-old Indian uncles, and they're going to be like, what is this woman on about? This is insane. Because, <laughs> like, one of his friends, um, he gave him one of the books, and he had, like, a conversation with my dad afterwards. I don't know what he said to him, but my dad came back, and he was like, you know, uncle, talk to me. He said that you're extremely sensitive. What does that mean? And I was just like, don't talk to him. I don't know. I, this is just like, I'm like, this is why you don't go handing this around like it's just like a pamphlet. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you've ever written that's upset your parents? I don't know. I mean, not that they've said any, not that they've, you know, pointed it out specifically. So my parents are very interesting. So like, even though my dad gets our On a conceptual level, I guess. Whereas my mom, because she's so afraid of what my dad might think, is just like, oh, no, like, we can't write about that or we can't, you know, we can't, we shouldn't do that. Like, what what will your dad think? So when I first showed her Milk and Honey, for some reason, the book always opens up to, like, page number 11. And it's this illustration of a woman with her, well, it's like a line illustration, so it's not too graphic, but it's just... You see that her legs are sort of spread open and the poem is like right in her crotch. And my mom looked at me and she was like (laughs) in a very nice tone because she knows I don't respond to authority very well. And she was like, you know, was it do you think the drawing was necessary? And I was like, excuse me? Of course it was. And so, like, that's how she is. And, you know, like, growing up, whenever I'd have, like, illustrations of, like, nude women or anything like that, she would come into my room, I kid you not, every single day. And she would turn them around because she was like, oh, no, this is bad. Like, your dad will see it. And my dad would be like, well, like, I don't really care. And, I mean, I get it, you know. My dad's never had to, as the man in that world like he's never had to grow up you know thinking you know what will what will so and so think he doesn't have to navigate the world in that way whereas my mom has to manage all of these relationships and think about all these things but um they came around I think it was actually when the book was published did they actually understand or that's when things switched like early on for like the first like seven years when I'd be you know performing and traveling to perform 
they just wouldn't get it. Like ninety percent of the time, I'd have to lie, so I'd be like, "Oh yeah, like I'm going to study," and then I would end up at like an open mic night or something, and I'd be performing. Because usually, if I'm like trying to communicate and be like, "Oh, I'm going to this performance about this like great event, and we're bringing awareness to this social cause," my dad would be like, "There was like two things. A, he'd be like, but." Actually, 25 out of hours out of your day, eight days a week, you should only be focused on studying and become the most genius human being and, you know, get a stable job. And that is all. So any time we weren't doing anything other than studying, of course, he was upset. And then second of all, you know, he was a refugee and he was living and that all happened because, you know, he was... He was an activist and he was, you know, fighting for social rights and human rights. And so he had his life completely flipped because of that. And then seeing then me fight for these things and care about these things almost like brought that fear back up in him. And he would be like, no, like, what are you doing? Like, we already tried these things and they failed stop wasting your time and so there was like both of those things and but when the book was published and I kind of dropped that like I handed it to him and they had no idea that I was publishing it or any of that everything just flipped like complete like this script just flipped completely and it was like how do we help and how do we magnify this so that was amazing while studying at the University of Waterloo Rupi wrote illustrated and self-published her first collection Milk and Honey In the years since, Milk and Honey has sold over two and a half million copies and landed as a number one New York Times bestseller, where it continues to sit for the 80th week straight. The first memory I have of doing anything artistic was not when we lived in Montreal, but we moved to the city of Hamilton. I was five years old, I think, at the time. And we lived in an apartment building, and there was a... We became friends, or my parents became friends with... um, a couple upstairs who were in their like 70s and they would I didn't have I only had like my baby sister at the time but of course she wasn't playing with me and so the auntie and the uncle from upstairs would come down and they would you know spend time with me and I remember they would pull the auntie would bring down her Indian suits and there was always like sequins and beads on them and then she would pick them off and she would get glue and a piece of paper and what we would do is we would make like elaborate like elephants and tigers and animals and like portraits and we would decorate them with these sequins and these beads and that eventually evolved into like you know my mom helping me draw and that's so that's where it all sort of began and I always use visual art for me was like drawing and painting and all that was how I sort of it was my therapy and so it was something I've been doing since I was a kid and something that you know I focused on throughout high school but I mean I didn't I only saw it ever as a hobby and then so when it came to career stuff there was a majority of the time like I wanted to either be a psychologist or like a human rights lawyer and That's what I was going towards until, you know, I also fell in love with fashion suddenly. And so for like three years of high school, I just like dropped sciences and I dropped math and I was focused full time on just like making gowns and preparing my fashion portfolio. And I was actually going to apply to fashion school until, of course, dad was like, are you kidding me? You'll fail miserably. Hmm. And so then I was like, damn it, like, you must be right. I will fail. And then 
instead I applied to the University of Waterloo and my friend called me up and he was like, yeah, like you should apply to this school. Um, you know, it's far away from home and you could also do co-op. And so that'll help you pay for school as well because you do like five terms and it's like fully paid, no like free internships or nothing. And so I was like, okay, cool. So then I started this economics and arts degree. A year into it, I dropped the economics part. I went straight into rhetoric studies, and it was the best decision because it prepared me, I think, for everything that I do today. And so I studied like visual design, visual rhetoric, um, everything from print media to print design, and all of the jobs that I had throughout school, you know, whether it was illustrating for a company or putting like pamphlets together on InDesign, all prepared me to sort of self-publish a book. Um, And the first time I sort of hit the stage to perform was when I was 17 years old. It was like grade 12. And I performed all throughout university, but um, it was really in 2013 or 2012, actually, that I was like taking the poetry really, really seriously. And suddenly I stopped focusing on the art. And I felt really guilty about that because I felt like I was cheating on my first love because I'd found a partner who was now suddenly like sexier and louder because poetry and performances like that, you know, you get on the stage and, you know, you hear your voice booming throughout an audience and it's like instant gratification because this audience is there and all these eyes and they're looking up at you and they're listening versus when I was doing the visual art thing and, you know, I'd be at an exhibit and I would not be, you know, speaking very much and my art was doing the talking for me and it was just on a wall. So I did feel very guilty that I'd kind of let that go. And so I asked myself, and it was in 2013, I was like, how do I now marry these two things? You know, is is there a way that I don't have to leave one of them behind? Can I use them to, you know, push one another further? And that's when the sort of illustration, like digital illustration look was developed. And that's what I began to share. So when you started posting your poetry online, it was initially on Tumblr. Did you incorporate your illustrations on that? And I also read that you did it anonymously. Why did you do it anonymously? I did it anonymously for a couple of years from 2011 to 2013, I believe. I don't know. It wasn't even like an I like it wasn't even a conversation for me. It was like, why would I ever put my name on my art, you know? And so I was sharing. Um, before it became digital, if, if you actually look, but now it's been deleted. But it, now as I go back through my older posts on that original blog, a lot of this poetry and the illustration, I was already doing the pairing, but it was just by hand. And so it's interesting when you look back to see over the years how this thing developed. Um, but when I began to share this more digital look that, most people recognize me for today. Um, That's when I was like, I approached my best friend who lived with me at the time in college. And I was like, hey, like, you know, I have this like poem and it's about like this woman who's in this like domestic relationship that's very violent. I don't know, like I kind of want to share it on what do you think and should I put my name on it? And she was like, yeah, like, I think it's great. Of course, you should put your name on it because I think it's important for people to see, you know, like, how you look because that says so much uh, about why you're writing about why you're about what you're writing about because you know domestic abuse was 
and is like so rampant in my community. And so, you know, she kind of made that decision for me. And so then I created a new blog and this one did have my name. And for a couple months, there were no illustrations. Uh, but when the idea of the illustrations did come up, you better believe I deleted every single post because I'm like that. And I <laughs> redid them all with the illustrations and then I released them again. Yeah, it's interesting how we kind of how we can really be embarrassed of the person that we used to be sometimes and over time like realize that that's that like that person was okay even though that's not who we are today and most people understand that but but you had to be that person to become this one. Yeah. So, is that where you started growing your initial audience? Did you mean to grow an audience by by doing that and at what point did you move over to Instagram? I didn't really mean to grow an audience. I feel like at that point like writing was just like saving me and it was giving me a voice and a voice that I feel like I didn't have like ever growing up, you know? And so it was like and I know this sounds a little bit funny, but I became like so hooked onto it and I was doing it every single day and it was funny because like most kids were like oh yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna party I'm gonna do this cool thing you know and I'm not gonna study but I was like yeah I'm not gonna study I'm gonna write some poetry cool you know and like that was like my thing and so I didn't really mean to grow an audience but it started to slowly develop and for me it was about sharing and having conversation and Tumblr was great for that. Rupi took her writing to Instagram in 2014 and began adding simple illustrations. All of her work is written exclusively in lowercase, and the only punctuation used is the period. I love, like, making things look nice and making... For me, like, that sort of, like, when I get something, like, packaging is so important, you know? And so all these desires that I have for how things look and how things should be, like, decorated and how things should be presented, I couldn't do that on Tumblr. I just feel like I didn't have the tools for it or that just wasn't for some reason the right platform because I was designing everything on Illustrator, you know, and I was making things look a certain way and feel in a particular way. But I couldn't fully express that on Tumblr and so I switched to Instagram at the end of 2013 when I realized that like, you know, this is a platform where I can fully decide how I sort of want things to look. And it was because of that desire, because I could sort of create a whole like visual universe that I enjoyed looking at and that was appealing to me that I switched over. And I mean, the only people following me were like a, it's like 114 of my like closest family, friends and acquaintances. And they were kind of in the beginning, like, what is this? Like, what are you doing? Because a lot of people weren't really posting like poetry on Instagram at that time. And so it was like a little bit, it was a little bit confusing, but you know what it did? It was like, it started conversation and so many women were suddenly reaching out and having dialogue and I was having dialogue back and like the comments section and it just slowly, slowly, slowly just started to grow since then. Rupi's poetry is a mirror reflecting complex feelings and emotions. She continues artistic exploration through art and poetry, searching for ways to understand and articulate. Do you love the idea of cooking, but just don't have time? Do you dream about whipping up a delicious meal and realize you don't have the right ingredients? Check out Mealime, the easy solution to healthy home-cooked meals. 
Mealime is a new app that makes meal planning so easy. You'll wave meal kits goodbye. This meal planning app is different than the rest. Here's how it works. First, choose your recipes on Mealime's app. Then they automatically build you a grocery list with the exact ingredients for those recipes. You can also order groceries straight from the app. Plus, no extra packaging. Mealime takes all the hassle out of planning and making delicious, healthy meals at home. Mealime is now offering Girlboss listeners 50% off their pro subscription. Just visit mealime.com slash girlboss. That's M-E-A-L-I-M-E dot com slash girlboss. Or find the link in our show notes. You're welcome. I also read that you don't have social media apps on your phone. Is that true? It is. It, it, <laughs> it's because, like, I mean, of course I had them for so long, but it's difficult for me. It became very difficult to isolate or kind of step outside of that, especially. And I decided to delete them when I went to write my second book because there was so much pressure to write a sort of, I don't know, I feel like I was expected to write a follow-up. And I mean, I never even imagined a universe or a world where I was going to be a quote-unquote author. And so it was all so new to me. And I... Even when I was published, even when I was like a New York Times bestseller, I still couldn't call myself an author. Like it just felt like that title, like I wasn't allowed to have that. And so when I went to write the second book, there was all this pressure of like, how am I going to create something again that's also a New York Times bestseller that's also sold like however million books. And like that was so I mean, that's a good problem to have, but it was also so much for me to handle because it was like I'm like, you know, 23 years old, 24 years old, trying to figure out how to like do it again, not knowing how I did it the first time because I didn't mean to. I only ever wrote and released Milk and Honey because I needed to do it at that specific moment to kind of like save my life. And it ended up snowballing into this like thing that I didn't plan for. And so that's when I decided I needed to delete social media off my phone because, you know, I was there. I'm like trying to write this book, but then I would like end up on Instagram or like Twitter and scroll through like stuff and like read stuff about me and like that would start to almost like influence my work and that's when I had to just put a full stop on it and be like whoa like this isn't fair to me and it's not fair to the readers who find so much joy in my work and I realized that and I'd been trying I'd been trying to figure it out for so long like what's the recipe here why was milk and honey as successful as it was. And I realized that it was that way because I was so honest with myself. You know, I wrote so honestly about myself, about how I felt. And the only way to have that sort of quote unquote success again was to have that honest dialogue with myself. And I couldn't have it if I was letting other people's opinions kind of impose themselves on me. And so that's when I was like, all right, well, I will delete it. I mean, I use it on my laptop and everything. Um, but that's when I decided to delete because I needed to kind of make space in my head. And I feel like when you're scrolling through your feed all day, 
no matter like your head is like full of information and i mean i am a strong believer that when you wake up in the morning that you're only capable of making like so many decisions in a day but if you spend the first four hours of your day or however much time like just scrolling along on this site and that site like you're filling your brain up with information and you'll be exhausted and when you're creative i think it's so important to wake up and just feel like you have a world and it's like this blank canvas and you can do whatever the hell you want. And using those hours for that was like very, it was very good for me. And so because it proved to work so well, then I continued to not do the social media on my phone thing. You know, it would be so interesting if there was an app that like literally turned off like yes. and whatever time zone that you're in, like the app was just inaccessible at like wake up ish, you know, like morning yeah. and evening, but like only on during work hours or yes. something, so that like people could only interact with it like when they like when it's like maybe healthier too. Or yeah, like like it's know. almost like night shift for night mode for on the iPhone, like just having that. So like you know, yeah. you're not waking up at three a.m. when you can't sleep and like looking through stuff, and you're like, oh my god, but what am I doing with my life? Because I think we I all have that FOMO, like. And it's like, I know I'm also part of that problem. And it's like, I, it's like we go on and we can be doing the coolest things, you know, and we can be working so hard. But then you go on and you see everybody else having so much fun without you. And you're like, shoot, but then what am I doing with my life? Which makes no rational sense, but we all feel it. And I, like... I always tell young women that I'm like, you know, and I because I also feel like I'm a part of that problem because I'm like, oh, like I'm posting myself in like this dress over here and then I'm going here and like that's fine. But it's also doesn't show my honest day to day because most of the time I'm like, you know, having the same like shitty day as everybody else because we're all human and we all face that. Yeah. One thing that's worked for me when you're not fully committed to keeping social media off your phone permanently is just deleting the app, but, like, not deleting your account. Like, deleting the app and then, like, whether it's once a day or once every few days, forcing yourself to re-download it and retype your password and, like, login information Mm -hmm. so that it's just, like, it's just one, like, hurdle to, like, okay, I'm going to download it. You just like if it takes you more time to do it, you're probably less apt to do it um, and have to like choose the time that you're doing it. Yeah, I've totally done that. Like I've logged out sometimes like I've logged out and the app would be there. And then because naturally, I don't know if you do this, but like. I wouldn't even have a notification on my phone or, like, nobody has texted me. But naturally, I just, like, put my thumb on the thing and my phone turns on. And without realizing it, I've clicked the app. And I would be so caught off guard when it wouldn't populate with, like, my newsfeed. Instead, it would be like, oh, like, sign in. And then I'd be like, oh, oh, that's weird that I did that. Oh, like, yeah, no, I'm not going to sign in. Never mind now. Ruby explores a variety of themes in her work, ranging from love, loss, trauma, healing, femininity, migration, and revolution. She's a storyteller and chronicler, a repository of community and history. It's not 100% autobiographical. A lot of it is. Um, A lot of it is taken also from... I guess the experiences of the people around me, the people that I grew up with, the stories I listen to, the stories that I share. And it's a sort of like almost like communal storytelling for me. And so um, when I do tell other people's stories or when I'm inspired by other people's emotions, uh, 
you know, it comes from like just conversation. And I think I do that because I'm so, and I've always like growing up, everybody, like I was so deeply empathetic to a fault. Like everybody would say like, I would literally cry on demand. Like if my dad snapped his fingers, like I would be bawling my eyes out. Or like if I saw anything, anything that was remotely sad, it would just shatter me into pieces. And so now what happens is when I have conversations with people, like I feel, feel so much of it. And for me to get that out, it's like I write and then sometimes it turns into stuff that you read in the book. Um, but most majority of it is autobiographical and the rest I would say is like a lot of like experiences that my sisters have had, that my mom's had, that my aunts, my cousins, my friends have. Your p- creative passion is your business and what your business wants may not be what you want as an artist, as a poet, is, you know, and and you're balancing like the business side of like the fact that you are your your you know book has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 80 weeks like you're going on huge tours there's like there's real money involved real opportunities brands who may want to work with you yeah. like how do you like yeah. reconcile the purity of your art where it meets like the the business opportunity i guess that i'm sure you have I've never seen it as a challenge up until probably now, actually, because for me, it's just been so exciting. I don't know. I think two things. Like, one is that, like, there's, of course, so many great things business. I mean, I'm so lucky that I get to turn something that I love to do and something that gives me life. Like, the fact that I get to do that every single day, like, I feel so, so blessed because I recognize that not very many people have that opportunity. Um And so, you know, I think it goes back to, like, what do you stand for? And I always ask myself, like, what do I stand for? What do I stand for? What do I want to, quote, unquote, sell, you know? And I'm so many of my decisions are based around that. And my company is built around that. And, like, everybody who works at the office, like, knows, like, you know, no, we can't work. We we can't work with them. We don't want to do an ad with this company. We don't want to sell this thing because, like, how can we be selling this thing when all these things are going on in the world? And, I mean, it goes back to, like, the poetry and what that stands for and making decisions, doing the decision-making based off of that. Um, and, I don't know, maybe that has effects, negative effects on the business in terms of like, could we be bringing in more revenue by partnering with certain people for sure? And we probably, to be honest, say no to like 98% of opportunities. But we do that because we really want to stand by kind of my message and my story and where I come from. I think that's okay because it also then gives me space to create and write more books and then make up for it in other ways. I think that's a beautiful thing. And yeah, I think going forward, what happens is like right now, for example, like I'm going on this tour for like the next four months and then I kind of had the summer off and then I'm not expected to, but like I have the opportunity to then go on tour again for like another three months in the fall. But it's like where I'm at a decision where I'm like, but 
maybe I don't want to. You know, I really miss creating again. And that's what I want to do first and foremost. And sometimes that's challenging when you're also feeling like CEO and businesswoman. But it's like, I love business and I love, you know, making decisions. I love talking strategy and growth. But uh, above all else, I love being an artist. So it's like now we're going into conversations about that. Like, maybe we want to cancel fall tour so that I can work on book number three. Is that going to make me happier? And I think I'm very, very lucky because my team is like so about that. And they're so strong and they're so rooted. And we're like, how do we, you know, the question is always like, I want to be a career author and, you know, I'm here to stick around for the next 50 years. So how do we make this sustainable and happiness and self like satisfaction is so important because we know that if those things don't exist, then we won't be doing this and we won't be growing for the next, um, you know, 30, 40 years. And so those are all sort of like we try to keep it very holistic, but it's really hard because sometimes, you know, these like fab companies are reaching out and you're like, oh, I love their stuff. You know, how do I work with them? But you're like, I also can't sell this, you know, because I know it just feels wrong in my gut. And then also it goes back to even decision making. And I think a lot of people don't realize this as well as like, um, what when I am publishing the books, like the one of the earlier questions that my agent asked me was like, not asked me, but she was like, oh, okay, so, you know, The Sun and Her Flowers is going to come out and it's going to be like a hardcover and it's going to be like 30 something dollars. And I was like super excited at first because I'm like, oh my God, I love hardcover. So beautiful. It just seems so legit, you know? And And then I sat with that for a moment and I was like, but wait a minute. I'm like, $30 is a lot. I know that $30 was a lot for me growing up because we couldn't afford full price books. Like the only books I was ever allowed to buy were the ones at thrift stores, you know? And so $30 for a kid who, you know, might have grown up how I grew up or even worse, you know, that's a lot and they won't have access to this book. And so then we had to really make that tough decision, you know, make that tough call that probably made a really big dent in revenue, but it felt right for me and it went it answered the questions of like where I came from and am I supporting that and am I am I accessible for that group you know and I was like very adamant on being like no I want a paperback book I want a paperback release and I want it to be 20 bucks because then if it's 20 bucks I know that Barnes and Noble or whoever else is going to discount it for 40% off and you can get your hands on <laughs> it for like 9 to 15 dollars and then you know that was that took months to get done because it was like But that's just not how it works. Like, that's not how books work. You know, the book always releases in hardcover. That is, like, such a beautiful, beautiful thing to do. I really, I really respect you for that. Thank you. Thank you. And, I mean, I still, like, Milk and Honey, after the paperback came out, we still, a year later, we offered the hardcover to those who wanted it. And we'll probably do that with The Sun and Her Flowers, too. But I think what really hit me and what made me really pushed back was because I asked my agent, Susanna, I was like, but why does it have to be a hardcover? And she was like, but that's just the way it works. But I was like, but why? And she said, well, you know, books come out in hardcover or that historically what would happen is they would come out in hardcover and the sort of like elite would have access to them and they would be the ones who would be able to read these books and pass them along within their circles. And then after a year, what would happen is then the cheaper mass market paperback would come out and then 
you know, the masses would have access to that book. And she was also like, you know, if your book doesn't come out in hardcover first, then the literary world doesn't really take you so seriously. And I was like, that is awful reason to continue to do this. Rupi's stage performances are magnetic musical interactions of poetry, art, and theater. She just finished a sold-out North American tour of her latest work, The Sun and Her Flowers. I love being on stage, and you have to, you have to come out to see a show. It'll be so much fun. I want um, to. It's like, and I mean, it's funny because like I don't really know what it's like. I wish I knew, but I've gotten so much information on other people, and what everybody tells me is that it's like going to a concert, but it's also like going to a comedy show because all of a sudden, you know. I'm just cracking jokes all the time. And I think I do that because I'm sharing such heavy work. And then my defense strategy sort of to balance all that out is just tell ridiculous stories and jokes all the time. And then it's also like sitting in a bedroom with your girlfriends at a sleepover. And, you know, you go through the cycles when you're at that sleepover, you know, you're talking shit. You're all of a sudden crying at 4 a.m. And then you're just like laughing around like you're doing all of it. And it's experiencing everything all at once. And so that's how it is. Like a show kind of begins and I open it up um, with a spoken word piece that's a company a music accompanies me and then I open my book and I'll read selected poems from like chapter one and then I break with another musical piece and then chapter two musical piece chapter three until the show ends and there's storytelling and all of that laced in between and it's just it's a journey I think whereas Instagram helped to create a visual universe for me performance on stage and being in an auditorium or, or theater and having audiences actually come to experience is like the full it's like the full experience and um it's great people are laughing people are crying i'm laughing i'm crying it's like all the emotions and it's like i feel i feel like the most powerful person or version of myself when i'm up there and i think that every single person in that room feels the same way because I am able to perform like that based off of the energy they feed me. And so we go back and forth. And a show usually lasts, like my set is about, you know, an hour and 15, hour and a half. But if the crowd is like really wild and some places they they do get a little bit wild, then I'll be up there for like two hours. And it's awesome. I have a, a big fan of yours here. Maggie Renshaw, who's my amazing executive assistant. Um, she came and saw you in Los Angeles last time you were here uh, for the launch of The Sun and Her Flowers. And she's just going to ask you a quick question cool. uh, before we wrap up. Hi, Ruby. How's it going? Hi, Maggie. I'm so glad you came to the LA show. Oh, my God. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So I guess I'll just kickstart with one little question here. Um, where do you find inspiration when you have, like, that dose of writer's block and you can't think of anything? Is there a place you go or something you do just to, like, open your mind and free yourself of all those inhibitions? I usually go out and just talk to people. For me, conversation and just connecting with people, it's just connecting with people is what inspires me. And so... I just have to go out. And it's so funny because sometimes you get it while you're, like, waiting for a bus at the bus stop or, you know, with your Uber driver or something like that. But that's usually where my inspiration comes from. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you, Rupi. I'll shoot it back over to Sophia now. Of course. 
there's one question I, I didn't ask you in the beginning, which is really important, which is like, what was your first job? Like, was writing poems your first job? There's no way. Oh my God, no way. I was, there's, <laughs> in, I don't, have you been to Canada? Uh, yes. Okay. It's cold. So there's a place called Tim Hortons. It's like literally part of Canadian culture. It is like a kind of a nicer version of Dunkin' Donuts. And it was 10th grade and I started pouring coffees there. Um, I did that for a couple of months and it was amazing because I felt so independent and awesome. But that was my first job. And then I went through a whole spiral of like really weird, odd jobs, like being a telemarketer and all this stuff and then selling cable door to door for a couple of years. It was ridiculous. Amazing. Is there anything you learned from those experiences that you've taken into your writing or your tours? That you have to work really, 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 really hard for your dreams. And I think, you know, especially that one job where I was doing, I was selling the cable and the telephone service, like knocking on doors all day and being chased by dogs. Like, oh my God, that I think taught me the most. I was like, wow, like... I need to work my butt off to get to where I want to be. And so that's what I do now, like not even taking anything for granted. Like I never take for granted that, you know, I've come here, I might have access to like these resources and all of that. I'm still like, I function where I'm like, no, like I have to work so hard for the next one because I just want the dreams to grow and I want them to expand and get bigger. Um. So Something I ask everyone who comes on the show, and it can be the simplest thing. It can be um, really the moment, a moment recently where you felt like you were in control of your life. You weren't being pulled in directions by other people. You did something. You carved out a moment for yourself. It could be logging off. It could be a bubble bath. Uh, Rupi, when, what was your most recent girl boss moment? Recently, it's just been saying no to things and realizing that I actually have the power to do that. And I mean, so many things come our way, but like now when I'm just like, no, like actually I'm not going to do that. That's so liberating. And I always walk out of that conversation feeling so awesome. And um, even just doing little things. Sometimes I give myself a nice face massage when I can't go get one, you know, and it's like those nice things. And it's only like three minutes. It's right in the morning. And I'm like lathering all my moisturizer and making myself feel so good. But it's like those little things that make me feel so prepped for the day. In 2016, Milk and Honey beat out the next best-selling work of poetry. You might have heard of it. Homer wrote it, The Odyssey. By a factor of 10, which is just amazing. I asked Rupi to talk to us about the notion of success and what it means to her. It's two things. It's happiness and it is the ability to do what you love the most. And happiness and the ability to do what you love the most, I don't think any of that necessarily... Like, you could have all of the money in the world. And I think you could have all the awards and the accolades in the world and still not be successful and I'm glad that I learned that so early on and that sort of fulfillment comes from inside and so I think that we always have to fight for our time and I think we have to fight for our space and I think we have to fight for our emotional well-being and our mental health and when we do that then we're at a happier place and when we're really doing what we love and yeah I think that's really important. 
Thank you so much for coming on Girl Boss Radio. Thanks so much for having me. We hope this conversation with Ruby inspires you to never stop expressing yourself. Keep up with Rupee on Instagram and Twitter at RupeeCore underscore. Share your love for Girlboss Radio and this episode on Instagram, Insta Stories, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. And as always, be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to sign up for our new daily email, The Girlboss Daily. Girl Boss Daily.